Hello, welcome to another episode of the podcast, EMS History, Myth, and Media. I'm doing this episode entitled Burnout, as a result of the drastic changes to EMS and emergency medicine since the onset of the COVID pandemic in 2020. Along with everyone in this field, I'm profoundly saddened by the current status of healthcare in general and emergency services in particular. Join me as I address some of the symptoms, some of the causes, and possibly some ways to work through personal issues of burnout. In early 2020, the COVID pandemic started in the U.S. In the early stages, no one knew or even suspected the drastic societal upheaval this disease would cause. Because this pandemic intrinsically involves the medical establishment, the nuts and bolts of healthcare, the effect on medicine has been overwhelming. I must point out that although it's been an ongoing American habit of claiming that we have the best system of medical care in the world, our medical establishment is and has been a tenuous and fragile entity. Cobbled together as a business reliant on third parties such as insurance companies and pharmaceutical manufacturers, whose purposes are primarily oriented to profit, hospital systems have been strained for decades. Hospitals have maintained, in spite of financial loss, they've worked through a network of government regulations and subjected to what insurance companies will pay. People may not be aware that when the hospital submits a bill to insurance companies, the companies routinely offer a significantly reduced reimbursement, often less than 50% of what the hospital or the doctors consider a reasonable charge for the service. There exists also a completely obscure method of charging for medical care. This explains why we as patients can't ask what it would cost to have a procedure performed. How much to have an appendectomy? Well, it all depends on whether you have insurance, which company, or Medicaid, Medicare is going to pay for it, uh, other hidden factors so that the business office can't even guess what the appendectomy is going to ultimately cost. Add to that that hospital administrations have long since considered an emergency department a loss leader. Although the emergency department is the source of a huge portion of admissions or the source of patients for procedures like surgery, the actual payments by insurance companies for emergency care is poor. And because the emergency department takes care of everyone who presents, regardless of whether they have insurance or any possibility of paying for their care, on the surface, emergency care appears to lose money for the hospital. Thus, it's been the unconscious directive of hospitals to run the emergency department, and frankly, the entire hospital, as thinly as possible. It's been a fact for years that emergency departments are designed and staffed to barely accommodate the volume of patients who present on a daily basis. Departments have never been built to handle surges, to be ready for disasters, or even routine increases in the number of patients coming in at any given time. Likewise, Hospitals have, for years, had no excess capacity. The percentage of staffed beds, which were currently occupied by patients, typically was over 95%. A surge in patients due to a disaster or disease, even influenza, which is expected seasonally, would routinely overwhelm the resources. Hospitals operating at 105% of capacity are not operating at the best interest of every patient and are putting a big strain on the staff working in the institution. 
Decades ago, there was a national survey to assess the capability of hospitals to handle unforeseen surgeons, basically asking if they could handle a mass trauma situation or a pandemic. The results showed that most hospitals already straining to perform with all their available beds full, the emergency department at full capacity with its beds full, and a number of people in the waiting room awaiting evaluation and care, these hospitals were woefully unprepared to handle even a 5% increase in volume. They might survive a few days of excess, but never months or years of upheaval. So for years, the typical hospital was operating at or perhaps beyond their capacity to handle the volume of patients that they were treating. In order to avoid even more loss of income, staffs were routinely pared down. Nurses were routinely expected to cover more patients. That critical patient-to-nurse ratio went up, and the staff with less training, thus lower hourly wages, were given increasing responsibility for essential patient care. Physician duties were likewise increasingly covered by advanced practice providers, such as nurse practitioners or physician assistants, who worked for less than what the physicians did. They supposedly worked alongside physicians and ostensibly were under the direction of the physician. The system was pushed to its limits. The resultant pressure put on medical staff had unfortunate, but in retrospect, wholly reasonable effects. People were under pressure, and it affected their mood, their satisfaction with their job, and even negatively affected their happiness and relationships outside of work. Then came COVID. This complex healthcare system, already laboring with constraints and pushed right to its limits, was hit with an ongoing increase in volume. Patients sick to the point of dying started arriving hourly. The 95% full hospitals were now at 110% or above. Emergency departments, who routinely had one-hour waits to be seen, now had six-hour waits to be seen. EMS providers were being called daily to respond, now basically to respond in hazmat suits, to patients who may or may not survive until they get to the hospital. And once the ambulance arrived at the hospital, they may or may not be able to transfer the patient, what we call offload, to a bed in the emergency department because all the beds were full. EMS personnel might have to wait in hallways for hours with a patient on an ambulance cart until the ER was able to accept the patient. Patients who've been waiting half a day to see a healthcare professional are understandably upset, disappointed, and at times hostile when the healthcare professionals are finally able to address them and begin their evaluation and treatment. A circumstance like this would be unsustainable if it lasted a few weeks. COVID is into its third year. Most of us in EMS and in emergency department care got into this line of work because we have a tendency to altruism. We want to help people. We are sustained by assisting people in their hour of greatest need. We get personal satisfaction by doing something which few people can do, providing life and limb-saving care, and even just being there to help patients on some of their worst days. For years, we were reinforced by the results of our efforts. Patients survived. Patients got better. Patients and the public appreciated what we did and were grateful for the most part. The wear and tear of this daily exposure to illness and injury has always been a factor in a loss of that altruism, that rosy anticipation which we may have had when we entered this profession. 
I've often said that we in EMS and emergency care are spectators of a continuous parade of human tragedy. It takes a certain psychological makeup to continue to do this without gradually wearing down your optimism and even possibly destroying the altruism which led us to do this in the first place. A certain percentage of healthcare workers gradually get to the point that they have to leave because they just can't take it anymore. The common name for this process is burnout. And just to be nerdy, I have to point out that the term burnout was started by the American psychologist Herbert Freudenberger in the 1970s. He described the effect of persistent negative pressure on people in helping professions. People may burn out and they're no longer happy with their profession. No longer do they feel positive about what they're doing and the displeasure at work begins to affect their overall perspective, not just at work, but also in their personal lives and their relationships. Ultimately, the person experiencing burnout must choose whether to continue doing the helping and how they're going to proceed if they stay in the profession. A critical aspect of job satisfaction in general has always been how employees view their manager. Displeasure with management has long been the principal reason people resign to find another job. Medical management, hospital administration in particular, department managers uh, and hospital departments have always had an immense impact on how a hospital department functions, and squad officials have the same impact on EMS squads. Some managers responded adequately with increased support and concern for the frontline employees during COVID. Others maintained a high degree of expectation for performance regardless of the overwhelming changes occurring in the field. People could frankly not be as efficient with inadequate resources for the surge. Patient complaints and dissatisfaction was inevitable, and some management personnel viewed this as evidence of incompetence or poor effort on the part of the medical professionals. This multiplied the job dissatisfaction, which was eroding morale in hospitals and in EMS squads. Resignations have recently plagued our profession. Turnover exponentially increased, and those who stayed in their departments or their EMS squad may suddenly not know the people with whom they're working. Nurses and doctors began signing on to work in remote locations for temporary assignments for amounts of money in multiples of what they could earn staying in the departments close to home. These travelers, having no background with the departments in which they were working, nor in the communities in which they were transiently working, diluted further the quality of care being provided by those hospitals. It wasn't the fault of the traveling staff. It's a result of having no attachment to the place to which they were temporarily assigned. I started emergency medicine and EMS in the early 1980s. I watched throughout my career as some people in this profession gradually changed because of it. Some became bitter, lost their positive feelings about the work, and began to see patients as objects of disdain, as obstacles to their day, as another reason for them to be unhappy instead of as another human being in need whom they could assist through hard times in order to achieve the success they used to envision in this line of work. It fascinated but upset me to see EMS and other emergency workers who, after a time in the profession, began to show some pride in their developing, quote, hardness, unquote. 
they seemed to consider it part of the natural professional progression that they were no longer affected by the emotional distress of patients. They began to consider themselves above the feelings of concern or attachment to patients. Of course, we can't wallow in despair about the awful stuff we may observe, but we can't divorce ourselves from true human compassion. Rather than thinking that these workers were being successful in adapting to the job, it always appeared to me that these folks were advancing along the road to burnout. What are the symptoms of burnout? Commonly accepted burnout clues are a loss of compassion, also known as depersonalizing the patients, an emotional exhaustion, and a decreased sense of personal accomplishment. The hardness which I saw people consider as a sign of their success in adapting to our profession was to me a sign of the depersonalization of patients, which signified to me that the worker was well on their path to burnout. Over time, those who I saw doing this didn't stay in emergency care very long. Some EMS squads and some emergency departments develop a community feeling of burnout, while others, through some joint support mechanism, maintain a positivity and happiness. Why, I wondered. It often came down to individuals in the group. One particularly positive individual could set the tone for the entire group, and everyone was buoyed by the exposure to that worker. Likewise, one particularly negative person, the proverbial bad apple, might drag the group into general despair and promote burnout in others who are susceptible. Adding COVID to the mix accelerated the progression toward burnout and made some people burn out who were previously unlikely to go that direction. Some of those who I always considered immune to burnout begin to show some of the symptoms I just mentioned. They lost the joy which we once experienced in helping people. Explainable but tragic, healthcare workers in unprecedented numbers begin to leave or begin to decrease the number of days per week or days per month that they would work or they would just settle into a daily sense of dread and despair. Many healthcare workers chose early retirement and a really tragic number succumbed to the hopelessness by committing suicide. The question, friends, is whether this burnout pandemic will break our system or how we will emerge from it. Can we, as emergency care professionals, first survive and second thrive to be positive and return to that initial altruism and caring concern which attracted us to emergency care? The question also becomes whether we can recover and save those individuals, emergency workers, who have suffered from the past couple of years, or is the future of EMS and emergency medicine solely in the hands of those people who will be joining our ranks as new employees? The essential need for us is to maintain empathy and compassion. Empathy is that quality of feeling for the suffering of others, feeling a bit bad because they feel bad. Compassion is an active quality of doing something to improve the situation. Since we both feel bad, let me do something which makes you better, and thus I won't feel as bad. Improving your circumstances makes us both better. Can we recover that positivity? Well, I believe we can. First, by congratulating ourselves for just surviving through this catastrophe. It must be noted that this horrible stress to our already rickety systems should have destroyed everything. 
but incredible people persevered and adapted to keep the train from completely going off the rails. Second, after that congratulations, we have to assess the remarkable damage that resulted in spite of our survival. Third, we have to identify the goal of making our work satisfying, personally rewarding, and mutually beneficial to both the public and to our team members. And lastly, we should make a contract with ourselves to maintain positivity and even to try to improve our workplace on an ongoing basis. We're not going to reverse the damage to the system in a short period of time. Starting to gradually change things for the better and making incremental improvements is the only way to overcome the negativity. As with most jobs, the road to improvement comes down from the top. If the administration fails to support, fails to be available during crises, or adopts a dictatorial attitude of this crap has to stop, you have to fix it, and have nothing else to offer, the efforts to restore and heal departments are likely to fail. Those remarkable individuals who've always been the wellspring of positivity in the workplace have to be identified, commended, stroked, and promoted. Those bad apple negative people have to have their influence decreased or they have to be removed, which may be difficult when staffing is already critically low. This process of accentuating the positive influencers and diminishing the negative influencers has to be applied to everyone from management down to the part-timers and volunteers. It's been my career-long feeling that emergency professionals, whether pre-hospital EMTs and paramedics or hospital-based nurses, doctors, advanced practice providers, or aides and techs in emergency departments are a uniquely blessed group. We perform a crucial service which most people could never accomplish. We routinely achieve results which much of the general public consider almost magical. We've been tested in the trenches of a major battlefield in this recent pandemic, but it's severely wounded individuals and the systems of emergency care. We have to look forward to reclaim the honor and prestige once bestowed upon us. We have to work daily to improve our squads, improve our emergency departments, and personally to improve our empathy and compassion, and by so doing, to improve overall the care we provide and which the patients deserve. It can be done. It must be done. Thank you for listening to my podcast, EMS History, Myth, and Media. This episode has been a detour from the topics I intended at first to cover in the podcast, but circumstances have changed my beloved profession, and I felt that I had to address the horrible consequences this disease has wreaked upon our society. It's made us even more fractured and polarized, but in this episode, I wanted to address the consequences upon the sensibilities, the resolve, and even the sense of purpose of everyone in the medical professions at every level. I hope that you want to reignite the fire of empathy and compassion which drew you to caring for people in their times of emergency. I hope that you resolve to reclaim the pride, the satisfaction, and the remarkable sense of accomplishment which emergency care gives you. I continue to admire you, to be surprised at your expertise, and yes, to love you for what you do. Please continue to listen I promise to get back to topics which I originally intended to cover in this podcast. This is Rex, and I'm honored to have spent decades engaged in what I consider to be 
the best job in the world, EMS and emergency medicine.